Hopefully you can partake in some of that. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We've been uh, studying the life of Christ chronologically, so we took the four Gospels and we put them together in a chronological order as best as possible. And we've been studying the life of Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater we could be doing with our time than studying Jesus Christ, how he lived, what he said, what he did. And so that's where we are. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 16. As we have said in previous weeks, you've got a bulletin insert. You can fill in some blanks. But at the bottom of that sheet and also at the bottom of um, a lot of our slides will be a phone number. And during the message, you can text questions. Uh, If you have any questions about what I say, um, questions about... um, you know, specifically this message, uh, some, we, on Wednesday nights we usually open it up to any question people have, they can text, but uh, if you have a question about something I say or something in this passage you'd like clarification on, go ahead and text that during the sermon, and then towards the end I'll answer those questions. So don't feel like, oh, this is a dumb question, he might have already said it, it's okay. Feel free to text it, and, uh, and I'll do my best to, to answer the questions that, as we get closer to the end of the service. So if you think of something, go ahead and and send the message, and and we'll address it at the end. You won't interrupt me or anything like that. But uh, if you have your Bibles or you're using the Bible app, we're in Matthew chapter 16. That's where we'll be reading today. Just to get you caught up, where we are right now with Jesus, he has left the region of Tyre, which is in... Oh, sorry, thank you. Uh, Today's message is part two of our volume three. Uh, In case you're keeping track, it's entitled The Gates of Hell. So Jesus has left southwestern Lebanon, this town of Tyre and Sidon that's actually spoken a lot of in the Bible, in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And so he's left this part, which is an area of town, uh, an area of the country. He's left Israel. He's gone to just a little bit north of Israel to Tyre where he encountered the woman who uh, had a daughter demon-possessed. And this is the conversation Jesus had with her. He said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And so we explored what Jesus was saying, the different Greek words. It wasn't dog as in a racial slur that a lot of times the Jews would talk about to the Gentiles and call them dogs. It was the Greek word for pups. And so Jesus explains that, and so we kind of unpack that passage. From there he left, and he's going back to Israel, going southeast towards the Sea of Galilee, and he encounters the blind man at Bethsaida, where he spits in his face. It was a very interesting message last week, so if you missed it, you've got to get caught up on that one. Um, Jesus, uh, the disciples probably thought Jesus had gone off the deep end a little bit by spitting in people's faces, but he healed him. And uh, so then they left Bethsaida and then went back up. um, And I think, do I have a map? Do I have a map that's up there? Yes, there we go. So then from Bethsaida, he went up north to a town called Caesarea Philippi. Now, this town is a highly unusual place for a Jewish rabbi to take his disciples. It would be similar, if you you need a modern-day example, it would be similar if a well-known pastor took a missions trip or, or took a bunch of his like deacons or core leaders to Mecca. And not for the purpose of evangelizing the people there, but rather to just have a very specific conversation with, with his disciples, with the people that he brought with him. And Caesarea Philippi was not always named that. It was also it was originally called Peneus. It was settled in the 3rd century B.C. If you don't like history, I'm sorry. You're going to get a little bit of it so that you can understand the context. 
All right, Peneus was settled in the 3rd century B.C. Peneus was named after the goat god Pan. <clears throat> he, is the, he was the god of desolate places. And there was a temple to Pan there that people would go and they would worship him. Well, a guy named Philip II, if you've, you're, we're getting close to Christmas time, and you remember the story where when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Herod sent out the decree to kill all children born under the age, all boys under the age of two. Herod is Herod the Great. And so his son, Philip II, is the one who built a temple in Peneus to honor himself and honor Augustus Caesar. And he renamed the town after himself and Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. And so he made it his administrative capital. So, Matthew chapter 16, the first thing we see, so point number one is Peter's declaration. We're looking at verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Have you ever been bold enough to ask someone what other people were saying about you? If you found out that someone was talking about you to one of your friends, you might ask them, what did they say? You hope it's something complimentary. Oh, you look sharp today. The beard is on point. It's looking good. But it might not be a compliment. It might be something critical. Have you ever written something negative about a coworker only to later realize they were copied on the email that you sent? Reply to all is the worst invention Bill Gates ever made. It has gotten more people in trouble in the workplace than anything else. I did not mean to send that to everybody. Retract, re- retract, come back, email, please. And you're pulling out people's power cords. Don't read that email. Why is Jesus asking other people, uh, why is Jesus asking what other people are saying about him? I think it was to gauge the opinions of the disciples, what they themselves thought about Jesus. Who had they been listening to? Surely people in the crowds had been talking and and uh, other rabbis and Pharisees and priests, they had expressed opinions about Jesus. So what were people saying? Verse 14, the disciples said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What's so bizarre to me is that it seemed easier for people to believe that Jesus was a resurrection of a dead prophet than he was the Messiah. A correct understanding and confession of who Jesus was is absolutely basic to salvation. Paul wrote in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So saying the right thing comes from believing the right thing. And if you don't believe the right thing about Jesus, you're not going to say the right thing about him. Any of you uh, remember when Jay Leno was doing The Tonight Show and they would do a segment called Jaywalking, where they would go out on the street and they would ask people questions. What do you think about this? 
And they would come up with these crazy answers. They would just make stuff up on the spot. You knew they didn't know what they were talking about. And if you did that, if you asked people, if you walked around the street and you asked people, who is Jesus Christ? You would get all sorts of different answers. Because if you don't believe the right thing about Jesus, you're not going to say the right thing about Jesus. The Apostle John warned the churches about antichrists that were coming and spreading false messages about Jesus that he was not the right, that he was not the Messiah. He wrote in 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies, and that word means rejects or refuses, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. That word confess is homologeo, which means to say the same word as. So you have to say the same thing about Jesus that the Father says about Jesus. That's the word confess. This is a hugely significant statement, especially in light of a society of pluralism and tolerance that we live in. I have a lot of friends that are Jewish. These are people that I love very dearly. I respect them as people of faith, but I disagree with their religion because their religion rejects Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Many of them do not know that Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies about the Messiah. And what John wrote here in 1 John 2.23 is incredibly important because it means there's no backdoor way into heaven for anybody, not for the Jewish nation, not for anyone who rejects Jesus as the Messiah. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Now, sometimes people will quote Paul's statement in Romans eleven twenty six. It says, all Israel shall be saved. But they almost always leave out the rest of the verse. They completely leave out the context of what Paul is trying to say. Yeah, it'd be easy for us to believe that a group of people, that God loves a group of people so much that he gives them a free pass into heaven without having to accept Jesus Christ. We don't, when we think about the reality of hell, we don't want to believe that anyone who rejects Christ or has simply never heard goes to hell. It's hard for us to accept that. You need to understand that God is a righteous judge, and every judgment he gives is right. But if ignorance were an excuse, the greatest thing Jesus could have said to his disciples is, don't tell anybody. But he didn't say that. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations. They must hear the gospel. They must hear the truth. If God allowed a back doorway into heaven without accepting Jesus Christ, that would completely contradict Jesus' own words in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You need to understand something in Greek. You're getting a little grammar, a little history. More than you could ask for, I'm sure. In the Greek, any time the word the appears, it's because there is a specific Greek word telling you it is that definite article, the, the only one of its kind. In the absence of that word, you would say a way, a truth, a life, but it doesn't have 
It, it has that Greek word, which means I am the way, the singular, the only one of my kind. The way, the truth, the life. There is no backdoor way into heaven. Jesus left no doubt. Nobody gets into heaven because of racial superiority. And nobody gets left out because of racial inferiority. It's an open door for anyone who confesses the name of Jesus Christ. God loves the Jewish people. But he's not letting them into heaven if they reject his son, who is the Jewish Messiah. And in our society today, we have a level of pluralism. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all point to the same spiritual ancestry in Father Abraham. So it's easy to interpret that to mean that we all worship the same God and we find salvation in different ways. Yet you cannot ignore the statement of Jesus Christ when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And John's statement that no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Don't be fooled by the temptation of pluralism. We do not worship the same God as the Muslims do. We love people, and we absolutely love them, but we do not have to agree to their false beliefs. Verse 15, Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? The disciples had witnessed dozens of miracles already. They've heard him teach with power and authority. They've, they've heard the audible voice of the Father when, he, when Jesus was, was uh, speaking. And, and the Father said, this is my son. Do what he says. That leaves little room for any ambiguity or any confusion. And they've walked miles all over the place with him, having hundreds of hours of conversations already. If they were not convinced Yet, then the hearts of these disciples were hard. and They might never get it. Thankfully, Simon Peter, a bit of a loudmouth, he spoke up. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was no small declaration. Every Jewish person was looking for the Messiah. They didn't want to follow a false Messiah. There were messiahs, so-called messiahs popping up all over because the prophecies were being fulfilled. And people knew that it was time. And so people would come up and they would, they would be very persuasive and they would teach and they would lead a group of people. And then Rome would squash it and they would all disappear and scatter and the, the movement would be no more. And so people are looking for a Messiah. Their, their antenna are up. They're listening. They're paying attention. And Peter makes this declaration. To have witnessed all that he has and heard all of the teaching that he has and to make this kind of a declaration is incredibly significant. Peter has put all of his faith, all of his hope, all of his trust in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. Peter's declaration. Number two is Satan's limitation. Verses 17 through 18. Satan's limitation. Verse 17, it says, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah, for 
flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now let's stop right there. Because Jesus is basically telling Peter, you've been listening, you, you have not been listening to the critics. You've not been listening to the naysayers. You've not been listening to uh, the, the skeptics and the cynics. You haven't been listening to the Pharisees and the priests and letting them influence your decision. You have been listening. You came by this declaration because you've been listening to the Father. And because of that, Simon, you're blessed. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That was a good place to say amen. Here's where the confusion of some groups began. This is the most one of the most controversial and debated passages in all of Scripture, this sentence right here. Roman Catholics have appealed to this passage to defend the idea that Peter was the very first pope, the first rock on which Jesus would build his church. Peter's birth name was Simon, or Simeon in the Hebrew. In this moment, Jesus is giving Simon a nickname. Cephas would be the Hebrew equivalent. Peter, or Petros, is the Greek equivalent. And the name Peter means rock. And then Jesus says, on this rock I'll build my church. So is Peter the rock on which Jesus built his church? No. Peter is Petros, which means stone or pebble. We might say a person is rock solid if they're very dependable or very muscular. When Jesus says, on this rock, I'll build my church. The word rock Jesus is referring to is the word Petra, which is a large stone or a cliff. So what's the rock Jesus is referring to when he says that he'll build his church on it? Well, the rock is not Peter Petros, the pebble. It's not Peter himself, but it's the declaration that Peter has just made. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the foundation on which the church is built. It is not built on the foundation of Peter. It is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is not the Son of God, then His death will not cover our sins. It will not save us. If Jesus is not the Messiah, then faith in Him is misplaced and will not send you to heaven. So, Peter, Petra. Very big difference. And then Jesus adds a very unusual statement after that. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, for years when I read that statement, I failed to understand what Jesus was saying. Because I pictured the gates of hell attacking us Christians, but that they wouldn't be able to overpower us. But gates are not built for offensive use. You don't see, when I was in the army, 
we didn't walk around Iraq with gates pushing people. Gates are not built for offensive use. They're built for defensive use. They are not for pressing forward. They are for pushing back invaders, for, for building a, a fence uh, and, and creating a boundary and protecting what's inside the boundary. And so in this passage, when it says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, we are the invaders. We are the ones that are taking the devil's territory from him, and he is powerless to stop it. Satan's gates, his defensive weapon, cannot protect his territory from the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel can snatch people up and save them no matter how wicked and perverse they may be. The gospel of Jesus Christ can transform even the worst of sinners. But there's something incredibly, there's something else that's incredibly important here. As I said before, the town where they are is Caesarea Philippi. This town was the world center of worship to the goat god Pan. People came from all over to worship this idol. There was a temple to Pan. There was a temple court where they would engage in all sorts of acts of worship to this idol. And in between the temple and the temple court was a large cliff. This cliff had a gaping hole in it. And the followers of Pan believed that this hole was how spirits traveled back and forth from the underworld. They called the hole in this cliff the gates of hell. This is why Jesus chose to take his disciples to this place to make this statement. The most superstitious place with the most depraved people could not overcome the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel could reach and transform the worst sinners. The gates of hell, no matter what you believe about that, the superstition, whether the spirits come from the underworld to earth, there it doesn't matter. The gates of hell, the power of the enemy, will never prevail over the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he took them to Caesarea Philippi. For the longest trip, for the most interesting illustrated sermon. To stand at the gates of hell. And to tell them the gates of hell will never prevail against it. In one sentence, Jesus has referred to three different rocks. Peter the pebble. Petra, the foundational rock on which Jesus is the Messiah. And Pule, which is that rock. The rock with the hole in it which represented the activity of the devil. So regardless of how hard the devil tries to beat us back, the gospel is still more more powerful than he is or he will ever be. The gospel is more powerful than any superstition, any false religion, any philosophy that seeks to slander it, silence it, or pervert it. By his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ would conquer death and hell so that death would not be able to hold any of his people. Christ would storm the gates and deliver the captives. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. 
in the victory of Jesus' death and resurrection. Satan is limited to what he can do. Sometimes we, we get this mental picture that Jesus is like Superman and the devil is like kryptonite. And anytime Satan comes around, uh, Jesus is made weak and Jesus can't do anything he wants to do. And that's a false understanding. Satan is not the opposite and equal of Jesus Christ. Satan was an angel. He was created. He is always inferior. His power is inferior. He is not God. He is not the opposite of God. He he is not omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent. He is a perversion of what he was created to be. And so Satan is limited in what he can do. I think it was Peter who wrote in one of his letters that he prowls about like a roaring lion. Because all he can do is roar. His teeth were pulled at Calvary. So he's a toothless lion. He can gum your leg, but he can't devour you. He lost, and Jesus Christ was raised in victory. So finally, we see Jesus' invitation. Matthew 16, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We need to understand this passage of Scripture. This is an invitation from Jesus. Keys lock and unlock doors. The person who holds the keys has the authority to determine whether something was, is to be locked or unlocked. When I first was hired at this church as the administrative pastor, I inherited all the keys. All of the keys to anything that gets locked or unlocked here. I even had the key to the lockbox that holds all the other keys. And so I actually, for several weeks, walked around because I never knew what door was locked that shouldn't be, and I needed to unlock it or whatever. So I walked around with a, with a little hook with all the keys. And I did it every week. Walked around. I never knew when I would need it. And my wife said, honey, you kind of look like the church janitor. Not the administrative pastor. I thought, well, I don't know. I might need a key. She's like, okay, well, then kind of figure out which keys you might need more frequently than others, and the rest you could just leave in your office. And so I I decided to do that. The keys lock and unlock doors. When you give someone a key, you give them authority. If you give a member of your family a key to your house, if they don't live there, then you're giving them the authority to come and go. And when you take that key back you're taking that authority away from them. And so keys decide whether something should be locked or unlocked, open or shut, bound or loosed. Jesus is telling his disciples that he's sharing some authority with them. He's giving them keys. And binding and loosing is a phrase that the Jewish disciples would have recognized because rabbis use that phrase all the time. To bind something means to forbid it, And to loose something means to allow it. So a rabbi would bind certain practices, and he would loose other practices. And when the rabbi had taught his disciples enough, and he felt like they understood, and they could have some authority on their own, he would give them the authority to bind and loose by telling them, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Jesus gave his disciples authority to flesh this out. 
to what was Christianity going to look like to figure out how we should live as a Christian. For instance, let me just give you an example. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, the Bible says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then does not tell you at all how to do that. It was left up to the rabbis to flesh this out. How do we remember the Sabbath? What are we allowed to do on the Sabbath and not allowed to do? And so he left, God left a lot of that up to the religious leaders to figure out. This is why Jesus would say, you've heard it said of old, blah, 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 but I say unto you, yada, yada, yada. And so he was engaging in this ancient practice of binding and loosing, allowing and forbidding. And so the ancient rabbis actually had a phrase to protect people from disobeying the spirit of the law. They understand, and what's ironic is they understood you could obey the letter of the law but break the spirit of it. Now, the reason I say that's ironic is because that's the exact same thing Jesus repeatedly rebuked the Pharisees of doing. Obeying the letter of the law, but rejecting the spirit of it. But the rabbis had a process to try to help the Jewish people obey not just the letter, but also the spirit of the law. And so Jesus said, as an example, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart. So what Jesus is saying is the letter of the law is don't commit adultery, but many of you were lusting after people and you were getting so close up to almost committing adultery, but you didn't and you thought, oh, I'm clean. I haven't transgressed the law of the Lord. And Jesus says, yes, you have, because in your heart you were lusting after her. In your heart you had committed adultery already. So the purpose was to protect the heart from being perverted by sin. This was called, this process was called building a fence around Torah. Torah represents the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Torah, the law, or the instruction of the Lord. And so they called it building a fence around Torah. They would wrestle with the Scripture. Believing that there was never just one interpretation of the passage. They believed that every scripture was like a diamond, a multifaceted diamond that could reveal beauty with every new glimpse. And so when we talk about building a fence around the Torah, um, if you've ever met an Orthodox Jew, you'll notice that they have separate ovens, separate cooking utensils, separate dishes for meat and dairy. They never combine meat and dairy. They, folks, they don't know the amazing thing of butter on top of your fajitas at Papacitos. And I, I grieve for them because that will change your life. It will absolutely change your life. They never combine dairy and meat. And the reason for that, the separation of meat and dairy, comes from an inter- their interpretation of a sentence that appears three times in the Old Testament. Exodus 23, 19, 34, 26, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 14, 21. This is the statement that appears three times. You shall not boil a young goat 
in its mother's milk. And because of that statement, they have a complete separation from meat and dairy. Now, we would read that verse at face value and follow the letter of the law. It doesn't say don't cook goat in milk, which is already a little weird, but whatever. It says don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. It's specifically referring to that goat's mother and the mother's milk. However, Orthodox rabbis built a fence around the Torah. And they wanted to protect the Jewish people from violating the spirit of the law. Because they might not have understood what the law was really trying to say. Even though it says it three times exactly the same way in all three instances. So they don't allow the combination of meat and dairy. To the extent they have separate plates and forks and knives and ovens and pots and pans. Some for meat and the other for dairy. And they don't combine the two. Now, building a fence around the Torah is not necessarily a bad thing. Now, we, we have to understand that while we, we may think that's ridiculous, not putting butter on your steak, how could you live? How could people live like this? But you have to understand the purpose of it. It was to protect people from temptation and from violating the spirit of the law. If they didn't understand it, or if maybe they brainstormed a little too hard, they might come up with restrictions that seem illogical to us. But the point wasn't to make life hard on people, or inconvenient, or make arbitrary rules. The point of it was to protect people from accidentally breaking the command of God. And if you never put butter on top of your steak, you never have to worry about the milk coming from the mother of the cow you're about to eat. If you never combine the two, you can never break the law. And that's why they did that. And so they built a fence around the Torah to make sure that that violation never took place. It's not a bad thing, building a fence around the Torah, making sure that people don't break the spirit of the law. But the rabbis got it wrong. And if we look closely about how Matthew wrote this passage, we can see Jesus, what Jesus is really communicating. You see... We, the church, don't tell heaven what to allow and to forbid. This is the danger, and this is where we are in our society, where we are, the church is evolving. And it's allowing things that it's never allowed before. And it is changing its message. There, there are pastors who absolutely, absolutely refuse to preach on sin. They never say the word in their sermons. They They say people feel bad enough about themselves already. Well, they should if they're sinners. But if you don't know you're a sinner, because nobody tells you that what you're doing is sin, you don't know you need a Savior. If the plane you're on is going down, and the pilot knows it, and the co-pilot knows it, and they've secretly put on parachutes, and they haven't told anybody else the plane is going down. They've just kept the in-flight movie of Patch Adams going so you can laugh and cry and have a good time at the same time, not realizing that you are on a collision course for death. You would be very, if you survived, very upset because you could have had an opportunity to save yourself, make things right, pray, call your family or whatever. 
But if you keep the knowledge of salvation and death to yourself and you don't pass that on, then no one can be saved. So we do, te- we do talk about sin because Jesus talked about sin. We don't beat people over the head with it. Our goal is never to make you feel bad about yourself. Our goal is no matter how bad you may feel, there is a hope and an anchor for our soul, and that is Jesus Christ who can transform anybody. So we, the church, do not tell heaven what to allow and to forbid. Binding and loosing is not a picture of heaven that does our bidding, but rather it portrays us in harmony with heaven, that we're praying and we're hearing the Holy Spirit. It, it's, it's not, Jesus is not saying, here are some keys. Whatever you want to do, I'll make it happen. No, it's actually just the opposite. We are binding and loosing things that have already been bound and loosed in heaven. We don't tell heaven what to do, but we obey on earth what heaven commands the church to do. So we don't have to build a fence around God's word to protect it. God's word prevails despite repeated attacks against it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We do have people in Christianity who have a voice and a platform, and they say things like, well, I I like the Bible, but I don't take it literally. Okay. And they'll say, well, like, for, for instance, Noah's Ark. I don't believe that that happened. Okay. I mean, it's kind of a big story. It's kind of a very important story. It's one that's not told as an allegory. It's one that's told as a historical fact. Well, there are too many questions about it. Okay, well, that's okay. We all have questions. We weren't there. We don't understand it. And the Bible is not a history textbook. It's not intended to give us every single detail of every historical event that took place. And so yet people say, well, I just don't believe it happened. I reject it. I I absolutely don't believe that Noah's flood and and the ark and that that whole thing happened. But the problem is that Jesus believed it. Because Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, with people... Uh, drinking and eating and marrying and giving in marriage, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. The fact that Jesus refers to that story means Jesus believes that story. He should. He's God. He's aware. He was in heaven when it was all going down. And so the fact that Jesus believes these stories that sometimes we have hard times understanding means that sometimes we just have to let it go. Sometimes we have to just say, I don't understand it, but I love Jesus. And I don't have to understand it to believe it. We're not calling people to blind faith. You believed in gravity the first time you fell out of a tree. And nobody showed you, you know, uh, what's the guy uh, that discovered gravity with the apple? I can't remember his name. Isaac Newton. Thing. I was Isaac, and I was like, Isaac Asimov? Completely different science guy. his books are weird. Anyway, Isaac Newton. See, nobody had to give you a chart and a graph and explain how gravity works and, you know, because of Earth, and we have gravity, which equals one, but if you're on the moon, it's less than that. If you're on Jupiter, it's more and all this stuff. Nobody had to explain that to you. You fell out of the tree and you experienced it for yourself. So we don't necessarily have to understand every detail about the universe and how things work to understand there's a God who loves us who has called us, who has redeemed us from the curse of the law, and I don't have to understand everything. I just know that there is Jesus. 
And I can trust it when he says something. I can take him at his word. And so the word of God stands forever. The word of our Lord stands forever. We are to be listening to the Holy Spirit, directing us, guiding us into all truth, his truth. We're not to be rewriting the Bible or telling God how we want to run his church from now on. Our job is to hear his heart, to listen to his voice, and to follow his lead. It's his church and not ours. And we always have to remember that. We did not have any questions that came in during the message. If you think of any questions, my email address is in the bulletin. You can email, you can text that phone number, and uh, maybe sometime we'll, we'll try to do a video or respond on the internet um, for, this, uh, for this passage. It's a fascinating passage, and uh, I hope that you uh, learned something about it. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. <clears throat> and Would you stand with me this morning? We want to conclude this morning by looking at the very final verse of this passage, verse 20, Matthew chapter 16. Verse 20, it says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is counterintuitive to us. It doesn't make any sense. Why would he not want people to know that he was the Christ? Not yet. Not yet. By this time in Jesus' ministry, his course is set, but it can be complicated by crowds who want to make him a political king of Israel and to force the Roman rulers out. That was not Jesus' destiny. He came to be the suffering servant, not a political ruler. He told his disciples once again, guys, be discreet. The time is not yet. Because he gives the command. He gives them the command, go into all the world, but not yet. Not yet. So Jesus started off this whole conversation by asking his disciples who people were saying that he was. And then the truth, the revelation of truth came out that he was truly the Messiah, the Son of God, that they had been waiting for. He told them not to tell anybody yet. When you know who you are, you don't need to tell anybody. If you ever walk into a room with co-workers, and if you ever have to say, I'm the boss, then you're not really the boss. When you know who you are in Jesus Christ, when you know what your spiritual identity is, when you know what mission God has placed you on, you don't need anyone's approval or endorsement. You're on a mission and sometimes the more people know, the harder it is to accomplish what God has laid before you. When people know who you are, that you're more likely to want to hear their applause, to feel the adoration of the crowd, to receive the praise of man. If you're on a mission from God, you don't need any of that because it will just complicate things. You need to silence all the voices that would try to make you center stage. And listen to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit that is directing your next steps. Our prayer should be, Lord, make me powerfully anonymous. Make me powerfully anonymous. I'm not in this for power, for prestige, or promotion. I'm not serving you for what I get out of it. I'm serving you for what you've already done for me. And when people hear my words... 
when people look in my direction, I don't want to block their view of the cross. Lord, let us always be standing behind the cross instead of in front of it. Let us be pointing people to Christ instead of ourselves. Let the cross have the final word. Our worship team is going to lead us in a final song. I just encourage you, if you need prayer today, something I said or in this, in this time, a worship time or whatever, we just recognize, I really need prayer. Before you go today, don't leave the same way you came. Maybe your, your priorities have been out of whack or maybe you're seeking direction from the Lord. Maybe you, you uh, have felt the power of the enemy just pounding you. And you're wondering, God, I need a break. It's just more than I can bear. We, as, as our worship team leads us in a final song, I just encourage you, come forward. I want to pray with you before you go. I don't want you to walk out of this place feeling defeated or discouraged. I want you to walk out of this place feeling empowered by the Holy Spirit that no matter what the devil throws at you, you have an advocate with the Father. You have a great high priest. You have a mediator that serves between God and you, and that is Jesus Christ, the greatest prayer partner you could ever have. He lives to make intercession on your behalf, it says in Hebrews. So I just encourage you, as they lead us in this final song, if you need prayer, come forward.